open your cerebral cortex and shift your lobes into upper beta phase because you are going to have Bitcoin knowledge transmitted directly into your vestibulocochlear. Your host of Bitcoin Knowledge is Trace Mayer, an early Bitcoin advocate since it cost a quarter, but this is not intended to be investment advice. A doctor of jurisprudence, but this is definitely not legal advice. And an investor in core cryptocurrency infrastructure, including Armory, BitPay, Kraken, and Mitagio, but this is not a recommendation of those services. Here, you get fed via direct mind download with pure and free Bitcoin knowledge. Welcome back. It's New Year's Eve, and this is the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast. Um, we're not going to do an interview this time. We're just going to kind of march right through uh, the 2014 year in review and uh, 2015 to come. So, you know, this is your host, Trace Mayer, and I think the Bitcoin is most likely unstoppable. It will be the internet protocol for transferring value. Uh, this is going to take several years to play out, uh, but I think that it's pretty much done. And so now it's just a matter of getting to the hard work and getting everything built out. We need to keep in mind that Bitcoin is a new technology. With seashells, we developed tokens. With symbols, we developed accounting. With smelting, we developed coins and scarcity. With writing and law, we developed contracts. With printing, we developed fiat currency. With electricity, we developed liquidity. With encryption, we developed global markets. And Bitcoin accumulates and cumulates all of these advancements. Uh, that's important to keep in mind. At its core, it's a new technology. Uh, it's a big, big deal. When we look at the larger geopolitical picture, when we look at the Bitcoin price, when we look at the investment, when we look at the seven-sided network effect, and we're going to talk about all those things in this episode, we see where Bitcoin's at in 2014, and we see what's to come in 2015. Just to start off with, uh, when we look at transaction volume, uh, and I like the 200-day moving average because that filters out all the daily noise, in January 2011, uh, the 200-day moving average was about 750 transactions per day. In 2012, that had risen to 6,970. January 2013, 32,415. January 2014, 53,720. Uh, and here at the end of December, 72,343. Uh, with about 80 to 100,000 uh, being the trend over the last couple of weeks. Remember, that's looking at 200-day moving average. People are paying... $5,500 per day uh, in Bitcoins in transaction fees to send their transactions around. They wouldn't be incurring those fees if the system didn't actually generate utility or value for them. Uh, unlike spam where you can just send as much as you want, email or whatever, you know, you can inflate a lot of numbers. Uh, but the transaction volume numbers, you can't really inflate the amount that you're paying in miners' fees because those go randomly to the miners. And that's separate from the subsidy or the block reward. So I'm looking at like users of the Bitcoin network, what they're actually paying in cold hard cash to use the system. Uh, and all of that is trending upwards, you know. But we need to keep in mind that 100,000 transactions, uh, when I was at Money 2020 and you had first data there, 
they process that many transactions in a minute. Uh, so Bitcoin is still just tiny, tiny. Uh, but in terms of the internet protocol and the network effects, I don't really see anything supplanting it, which is exciting. So larger, larger picture, you know, currency wars, they're only going to intensify and there are going to be unintended consequences everywhere. In December, we saw the Russian ruble get attacked, probably by the U.S. because there were also sanctions. I mean, it was down significantly, like down 50 percent. Putin had to raise rates six and a half percent. In six days, it was up 31 percent. I mean, we cannot have this type of volatility and uncertainty in currencies, of all things, because currencies are like the oceans, and then corporations are like the vessels or ships on top of these oceans. And so when we when we start getting these massive waves and whirlpools and hurricanes, uh, we, we can just have unintended consequences everywhere. It goes from an economic to a political to a, sci- to a uh, geopolitical, social, all of these unrests. The, the crisis just keeps mutating. And uh, unintended consequences. And we're just going to see more of that in 2014. A big, big, big issue, and this is one where I think Bitcoin really shines, is counterparty risk, particularly with the banks. Uh, they're going to continue growing in their counterparty risk, and they're going to continue blowing up. Uh, Warren Buffett, he talked about these derivatives uh, back in the letters to shareholders in 2007, 2006, I think, called them financial weapons of mass destruction. Uh, the Cromnibus bill, Section 630, just got passed. It was identical to the House Resolution 992, the Swaps Regulatory Improvement Act. They've just offloaded trillions and trillions of dollars of derivative counterparty exposure to the U.S. taxpayer. Uh, the banks have. And this is just going to put more and more pressure on the FDIC, which is already hugely overleveraged, more on the Fed, which only has 1.26% of assets to equity. I mean, you want to talk about a hugely overleveraged institution? Look at the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. And at the end of the day, this, this is it's all going to evaporate. The great credit contraction, if you look at my liquidity pyramid, I mean, I wrote a book about this, released it in early 2009, about the same time as Bitcoin did, said the great credit contraction has begun. The system does not collapse. It evaporates. And look at what has happened with the oil price and all the strings of effect from there, the derivatives that will blow up because of that. I mean, we have ETNs and ETFs that are all based on the oil price we got tons of uh, contracts, all types of stuff. And at the end of the day, it's failed foreign policy. I mean, we're talking about geopolitical decisions that are introducing all of this uncertainty. And since it's political in nature and geopolitical in nature, that's setting off all of these financial weapons of mass destruction, that's the new type of warfare uh, to start with, is this economic and this financial warfare. And Russia, Putin has, you know, he specifically called it out. He's like, look, the BRICS have 3 billion people and their GDP is now larger than the G7s. We need to recognize that. And that's a big issue. You know, we're trying, the, the U.S. and the West is trying to maintain a current geopolitical structure that may not be supported with the economics. 
And so, you know, if you think the U.S. is a rogue elephant on the world stage now, just wait until she's truly panicked. And everything's getting set up for that panic because the banks and the derivatives and the law is all being conscripted into this geopolitical effort. And there will be unintended consequences. And it'll be a gigantic mess, especially for people who are holding wealth in the current system and have their assets hypothecated and rehypothecated and pledged and they're seizable because they don't hold the private keys to their assets. Instead, it's a share of stock in an E-Trade account and in a DTCC vault that got flooded in Hurricane Sandy. I mean, you have to reduce these layers of complexity and risk between you and your assets. And that includes counterparties, that includes custodians, everybody. Gold and Bitcoin will be prime beneficiaries of this trend. If we look at the price of oil in gold, it's at a major low. The October price, the 200-day moving average of this oil-to-gold ratio, 0.0726. The current price is 0.0454. So the price of oil in terms of gold has nearly gone down 50% in two months. That is not the result of normal market operations. It's the result of foreign policy, governmental intervention, economic war, sanctions, and political and geopolitical choices. We can expect more currency war and retaliation in the future. So reducing counterparty risk, reducing custodianship risk, holding one's own private keys to various assets... You know, with Bitcoin, it's super easy. You just download Armory. That's one of the reasons I funded it. It's free, open source software. Like, just download it. Hold your own private keys. Uh, We've done three interviews with senior Armory developers explaining this process of private keys. Uh, Just go back into the archives. It's some of our first podcasts. I think it's 100, 101, and 105 or 106. Just listen to those. Try to understand this concept of holding your own private keys. Because once you start doing that, once you start holding the private keys of wealth yourself, uh, it's very liberating. It's very important, especially in the environment that we're going to be moving into and that we're currently in. Geography will continue becoming more irrelevant to economic activity, particularly as business has to plan for all of this uncertainty. And so we're going to see things like telepresence and virtual reality, uh, Skype's live translation. I mean, that's Star Trek's universal translator uh, today. I mean, it's no longer science fiction. We're going to see decentralized currencies playing a critical role in enabling individuals and businesses to untether from these nation states that are causing all of this turmoil. Uh, Very exciting times, you know, very transitionary times. We have to remember the agricultural age to the industrial age, that took 500 years to transition for the most part. This transition from the industrial age to the information age is only going to take about 40 to 50 years, and we're already 20 years into it. Uh, Bitcoin is going to speed that up because it's untethering individuals even further from the nation states. And all of this goes back to this public key, private key technological advance in the 70s, which fundamentally changed the economics of violence. Uh, 
the cost of protection and the return on investment from extortion got massively changed and disrupted when that encryption technology was developed. And that is what I think it's those tectonic plates that are even below the oceans that have begun to move. And that's what's causing a lot of this uncertainty in the oceans, which is then rippling out in its effect onto the boats, etc. So, you know, when you change the economics of a system, that's what changes all the behavior. It changes all the culture, etc. Just changing the economics is a huge, it, it's probably the largest effect that one can have. And so when Bitcoin's market cap gets large enough that speculative attacks can be launched on these fiat currencies, which are really just the common stocks of these nations, it's like their their stock, right? And you dilute it through quantitative easing. That's when things get really exciting. But it's still a few years off. We need at least a $50 billion market cap on Bitcoin to even go and start attacking some of the smaller sovereigns. Uh, but yeah, it's going to be fun. So let's look at the price now. To help explain this, we got to keep in mind that the supply of Bitcoin is fixed by the protocol. There's a small float of saleable Bitcoins. That's largely because a lot of Bitcoins were lost or they're with very, very strong holders, these Bitcoins from the early days. Uh, and there are no margin calls with these Bitcoins because individuals hold the private keys. They can't be forcibly like taken from a margin call or something. I mean, th- these are equity-based assets. And so when we look at that float and prices are set at the margins, well, we had 1.3 million Bitcoins that got issued to miners in 2014. And the block reward is ahead of schedule because of that. 3,600 Bitcoins a day, but it's actually a little faster because the hash rate grew so fast from the ASICs. And those 1.3 million Bitcoins go straight into the float. And so we're seeing a lot, you know, the price discovery, I think, is a lot more accurate because we have a lot more people moving their Bitcoins around, a lot more market actors. And so that's our supply. Then we've got transactional demand. And when we're using Bitcoin merely for access to the network, that's to move Bitcoins around, that's to use things like MasterCoin or Next or BitShares, electricity is largely, uh, elasticity, I mean, not electricity, elasticity is largely irrelevant for those transactions. That's because when you're when you're abstracting on top of the Satoshis, you could have a Bitcoin transaction that only shows like 50 cents worth of Bitcoins moving around, but the assets on top of that could be $100,000 worth of assets. And so you don't really care whether the, the Bitcoin transaction costs 3 cents or 30 cents or even $30 because you're moving $100,000 worth of value. And you're, you're, you want those assets to settle into the Bitcoin blockchain because it's protected by so much computer processing power, the, the Bitcoin network's hash rate. And so elasticity is irrelevant when you're trying to settle transactions into the Bitcoin blockchain, which means that we only have one variable in this equation that's changing. Uh, unlike fiat currencies, you know, fiat currencies, supply is unknown. 
set in backdoor deals with Ben Bernanke or Mario Draghi. Uh, supply is not fixed. Transactional demand, uh, we you know fluctuates because there, we we don't really talk about demand for currencies, but but Russia and China and a lot of these developing. Uh, countries are are doing swap agreements now and that's decreasing demand for dollars so there's supply of dollars but there's also demand for dollars it's the same with bitcoin and so the only variable we have changing is speculative demand and that price is set at the margins and everybody loves to chase the rabbit like as soon as that bitcoin price starts moving like everybody just starts chasing it right and so the price is since we only have this one variable that's changing, we we have a very volatile Bitcoin price. And so I think we're going to see lots of bubbles, lots of crashes as market psychology changes because everybody loves to chase a rabbit. And when that rabbit starts moving, when that Bitcoin price starts moving, nobody sells their Bitcoins and everybody starts buying Bitcoins and everybody holds their Bitcoins. So the supply of saleable Bitcoins dries up. Demand increases and the prices are set at the margin, but the elasticity for a lot of the demand does, is irrelevant. And so people buy them no matter what the price is because it continues to perform that utility of settling things into the ledger. And so the price can just run like nuts. And so what we've seen is volume has increased greatly. Uh, in fact, we had more volume in one day in 2014 than in all of 2012 combined. So as this volume increases, uh, I think we get more accurate price discovery. And that's exciting. And so let's just look at the price. You know, some, some benchmarks. January of 2011, it was a quarter. January of 2012, it was up to $4.58. 2013 is up to $13.24. 2014, it was up to $732, uh, January of 2014. Uh, and here at the end of 2015, 2014, so January 2015, we're at $310. Uh, that's still, you know, when you look at January 2013 to January 2015, $13 to $310, that's great growth. Uh, we had a lot of volatility and volatility inducing uh, things that happened in 2014. Mount Gox collapsed. The price had run to over $1,000 with the Senate hearings at the end of 2013. Uh, we, you know, we, there's just a lot of stuff that went on. And so, you know, the, the price is volatile. But at the end of the day, $310, like Bitcoin's going to be $0 or it's going to be huge. And, and we should just keep that in mind. Bitcoin's got a killer app and it's already here. And Satoshi wrote about it in the white paper. It's this concept of these smart contracts. Uh, we have triple entry bookkeeping with Bitcoin. I already talked about you know doing a hundred thousand dollar trend, hundred thousand dollar value transaction with a fifty cent or three dollar transaction in the Bitcoin network. MadeSafeCoin is a great example of this. You know we we got MadeSafeCoins moving all over the place right now. And I'm hugely, hugely bullish on MadeSafe. I mean, it's only like a $22 million market cap right now. Uh, I think that, like Bitcoin, it's got very solid holders on the MadeSafe coins that are out there. Uh, we could easily see a 5x return on MadeSafe, even from today. And 
Matesafe is already up 5x in terms of Bitcoins from its IPO a year ago. And it's up like 30% against the dollar. So like Matesafe's been a great investment, a great play in 2014. And, uh, you know, I'm hugely bullish on it. I think a lot of the work's getting done for uh, this coming year. You know, they've done Test Network 2. They're going to do Test Network 3. Then it's going to be a beta rollout. Uh, Things are on track. It's going a little slow, but, uh, you know, it's massively disruptive technology that's going to be awesome. And so that's a good example of how the Bitcoin ledger can be utilized by other applications. Uh, and so Bitcoin's killer app is already out already. You know, smart contracts, it's a huge deal. You can get around central third-party uh, actors, insurance, gambling, bookies. Uh, like, I mean, the applications are endless. We've also seen a lot of venture capital investment. We in 2012 there was 2.1 million dollars of VC investment. 2013 it was up to 93.84 million. Uh, 2014 we've had over 300 million dollars of venture capital investment. So 2 million to 90 million to 300 million. All of this stuff is building out fundamental core infrastructure which is important for Bitcoin to get adopted. And it's also a reason why I don't think that any other protocol is going to be able to overtake Bitcoin. You know, Bitcoin's got this massive lead ahead of everybody, not just in terms of human capital, in terms of venture capital, uh, institutional knowledge, all this stuff. Notable investments, uh, BitPay, $30 million round. Uh, I was a seed investor in BitPay. They've been just hitting the ball out of the park, doing a great job. They landed Microsoft, like Microsoft, the number two market cap company in the world, now accepts Bitcoin, and they use BitPay, and that's exciting because accepting Bitcoin, they Microsoft said, you know, we've got a lot of ideas about how we can apply Bitcoin, but accepting it is the first step. We're dipping our toe in the water. That's a major signal to the market. Uh, Visa, Google, Facebook, Apple Pay. Uh, all these companies, Western Union, MoneyGram, all these companies should be uh, on the lookout for that. And the banks, too. Then there's BitNet. They raised $14.5 million. These are a bunch of ex-Visa guys. They had left Visa, started a, a startup, sold it to Visa a few years later for $2 billion. Uh, now they're focused on a Bitcoin payment processor, merchant processor. They're going to compete with BitPay. And I think they're going to do a great job. They know what merchants need. They know what the current market offers. Uh, that's exciting. And the other major notable investment of the year, I think, is Blockstream. Blockstream has a bunch of Bitcoin core developers that are co-founders. They raised $21 million, mainly from Reed Hoffman, but also a bunch of other Internet pioneers involved. Uh, Eric Schmidt from Google. And they are going to be building out the core protocol. They're going to be extensifying it. Like, this is really, really cool. Like, Blockstream, that's probably the most bullish investment of the year, in my opinion, for Bitcoin in general. So we've got, like, two different opinions, right? Warren Buffett, who's largely a crony investor in banks and insurance companies, which benefit wildly from fiat currency and bailouts, and for which Bitcoin is antithetical, 
So he recommends to stay away from Bitcoin. And then on the other side, you've got Bill Gates, who's the wealthiest person in the world and founder of the innovative tech giant Microsoft. And he says that Bitcoin is a techno tour de force. So we've really got this big tug of war going on. And I use these two icons merely to like highlight the difference. But I think that this tug of war is going on at the individual level all across the world. We've got people at banks. We've got people at major corporations. And there's this massive tug of war between people who don't understand Bitcoin and don't understand computers and don't understand protocols. And they're resistant to this change that's coming from Bitcoin. And then you've got people like Bill Gates who understand the technology, who understand computers, who understand protocols. And they say the Bitcoin is a techno tour de force, a stroke of genius. Uh, and Eric Schmidt, who has a PhD in computer science, by the way, in addition to having been Google's CEO for years, he's also used that phrase techno tour de force. I haven't really found anyone who is negative or bearish on Bitcoin who actually understands it. That's something else I think that is important to keep in mind in this trend. And so we have a lot of really smart people out there who do understand Bitcoin and they're largely all proponents of it or they at least acknowledge the major technological breakthrough. And then all the trolls, you know, if we want to call them that, all the bearish people, all the people that, you know, don't really like Bitcoin or say to stay away from it or say it's a mirage like Buffett, all these people, they don't seem to really understand the technology. And so because of this information asymmetry that's in the market and Bitcoin is a very, very complex subject, like, and it brings together a whole bunch of technologies this leads to widely varying opinions on like the potential success of Bitcoin, all of these things, which I think makes its way right into the price. You know, if everybody understood Bitcoin, if everybody had put in the hard work and the homework to understand it and were prepared to understand it, then I think we would see the price discovery happen a lot faster and more accurately. And what I mean by that is I think we would see the melt up to a fair market price of, you know, ten or hundred thousand dollars per Bitcoin very quickly. But because we have this tug of war, because we have so much uncertainty, because so much has to be built out, because the companies have to be formed and funded and the hard work has to be done to realize the potential, and because there will be setbacks all along the way, like Mt. Gox failing or the inadvertent hard fork, like all these things. All this filters right into the price and people, you know, don't necessarily know uh, what they think it's worth. And they fluctuate in their opinions day to day and they buy and they sell and they go short and they go long and they use leverage and uh, they create, you know, it. that's all part of the fun. But what it does is for the people who really understand it, for the people that that are able to properly assess it, the market's going to reward them. It may not be tomorrow. You know, Mr. Market, as Buffett talks about, he comes and tries to sell something to you one day and the next day he'll sell it to you half price. It's because of all this information asymmetry. and But the market does reward what Buffett calls intrinsic value. 
and that's really what you're trying to do as a capital allocator. You're trying to identify undervalued assets and buy them. And then you try to identify overvalued assets and sell them. And so the critical issue for people who want to speculate on Bitcoin's price is whether Bitcoin is undervalued. And, you know, for all these reasons that I've been going into, you know, I'm making the case for why I think it's undervalued. It's going to be very exciting when we see this uh, melt up in the Bitcoin price because uh, I, th- I think there is a potential or a possibility that it could happen very quickly. I, I, I kind of, you know, I'd call this going viral uh, or hyper monetization. It would be the opposite of hyperinflation, mainly because we've, we've never had anything like this in all of human history. Perhaps the closest example would be the euro. You know, the euro went from being worth nothing one day to, to having a, a large market cap, free-floating value the next. But that was all done by government edict and treaty and, like, all this cooperation and retiring the old fiat currencies. And, and then they could be exchanged for Bitcoin, uh, for euros, etc. But that's the closest. We've had plenty of examples of hyperinflation. And so, you know, I think if you flip the curve... Uh, you see hyperinflation just massively goes to zero. If you flip the curve, that's what a hypermonetization would look like. For that to happen, there has to be a huge foundation built, foundational technology, foundational applications, you know, BitPay, Armory, uh, smart contracts, all of these things are being built to make this possible. And it's being built on top of other technology like the internet, GitHub, smartphones, personal computers, public key, private key, encryption, all of this stuff. It also requires the accumulation of human capital. You have to know how to secure the wallets. You have to know how to use the tech. And this isn't just for people building the wallets. This is for the average individual person using the technology also. You know, it took a while to teach people how to send emails to help them understand what the at sign meant. And yet now we're building on top of all this cumulative effort and cumulative work and effect. And then there's also going to be a greater difficulty preventing this hypermonetization of Bitcoin using capital controls because it subverts or it goes around the need for the third party. Additionally, I think it'll go faster because people are going to be chasing the rabbit versus being fooled by the wizard behind the curtain about what the true value of the the fiat currency is or what the market value should be, what the true supply is, et cetera. Uh, so it'll, you know, it, it's a lot easier, I think, for people to chase a rabbit than, uh, you know, when you try to fool them, well, you do fool some of the people some of the time. And also, this won't be hugely disruptive to the local economy, like hyperinflation is. And so it'll likely be accompanied by increased productivity and increased wealth where uh, where the adoption takes place at very rapid rates. So all of those factors, I think, are very much in line with why I think Bitcoin could take off really, really quickly. So far, we've seen it mainly come in waves tied generally to the media cycle. Uh, you look at 
you know, the Google search trends for Bitcoin and it corresponds very closely with the price. I think that's how like this is how fast stuff can happen in the information age. It's the click of a button, like click of a mouse, bam. Uh, back in the, the financial crisis, there was five hundred billion dollars withdrawn in like three or four hours you know bank runs you don't go get in line at the bank anymore like bank runs happen electronically that's how fast this is going to happen like bam just super fast and you're either going to be prepared for it or you're not and if you're not prepared for it then you're going to get trapped and that's why it's important to hold the private keys to your own assets next we have a seven-sided network effect taking place with the Bitcoin protocol, at least seven-sided that I can think of. And this, you know, any other protocol, not only do they have to be marginally better from Bitcoin, but they have to be marginally better in all seven of these different areas and all at the same time and significantly better that they're able to bring all of the users in these areas over at the at the same time. So... I just don't really see that happening because anywhere that that protocol might be better, it could just get folded into Bitcoin. It could just get merged in a GitHub pull request. So, you know, let's look at each of these seven sides. First, we've got speculation. You know, that's our first network effect. Oh, Bitcoins are at a nickel. That's when I started talking about them, which, you know, if you had them today, you would be up 280,000% absolute return. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett's company, it's up 140,000% return in 35 years. So you'd have twice the absolute return in a tenth of the time. Uh, so Bitcoin's been a massive speculative play. In order to have that speculation take place, you have to have wallet security, things like Armory. You have to have exchanges, things like uh, Kraken. Uh, all of that you know, is needed for speculation. Once people have Bitcoins, they want to, you know, hey, it'd be great if I could spend them. And they might prefer merchants that accept Bitcoin. And so that's our second network effect. And so we need merchant adoption. We need companies like BitPay and BitNet, etc. And they go get the Overstocks and the Dells and the Microsofts and the Dish Networks. I mean, these are all massive publicly traded companies that started accepting Bitcoin in 2014. The first one in January, Overstock. And they take Bitcoins from their customers. You know, as 50 Cent said, because he released his album for Bitcoin, and he was asked, why Why are you accepting Bitcoin? And he's like, money is money. <laughs> so, you know, smart merchants understand, hey, we'll take money from our customers any way they want to pay. And if it can have no fraud, no chargebacks, and low fees, uh, and we can take payment from anywhere in the world, like, all the better. Because Overstock now, they're able to take customers or consumers and this is the third network effect they can take consumers that will pay with bitcoin merely because the merchant accepts bitcoin and overstock you know they can now they now take bitcoin payments from 200 plus countries and they'll ship there too and so amazon they only take payment from 55 or 60 countries and so they're seeding 150 markets to overstock they're saying, you know, we're not even going to compete. And they can't compete because they don't have a payment method that they can take from those countries. And so Overstock has a huge competitive advantage because they accept Bitcoin. 
they can access all these consumers in these developing markets that want to buy stuff uh, in a very cost-efficient, cost-effective way. And so then we get other companies like 37Coins, Coinapult. Uh, these are companies that provide like SMS text message Bitcoin wallets. So you can be sending Bitcoins around using just your smartphone text, text message system. And then there's ATMs, et cetera, where, you know, people can acquire Bitcoins in these countries very easily. So that's our, that's our third network effect. And then we, we have, because of this increased demand for holding Bitcoin merely to use it for transactions, uh, because it, it does increase demand, even if it's only for a few seconds, uh, and Bitcoin's velocity is a lot faster, so we have to really increase this transactional demand for, for it to be effective on increasing the price. Uh, but all of that increases the price and draws in more miners who provide more security. So that's our fourth network effect. The Bitcoin network hash rate is currently, I think, 60,000 times larger than the hashing power of the 500 largest supercomputers in the world combined. Uh, so the Bitcoin blockchain is far, far more secure than any other altcoin out there, any other internet protocol, etc. And so, you know, we've got ASICs, application-specific integrated circuits, that are getting developed to secure our blockchain even higher and higher degree. We've had major increases in the hash rate. Uh, we've had washing out of unviable companies, you know, several big mining companies have declared bankruptcy, et cetera, because this volatility in the price and everything. But all of that is just natural market effects. And at the end of the day, we're left with a much higher hash rate, which means Bitcoin is more secure. Because Bitcoin is more secure and there's consumers and merchants and speculation going on, it draws in the developers. And if we look at how that worked, you know, with REM, uh, BlackBerry, the developers left and went and worked on iPhone stuff and Android stuff. And two years later, nobody was building any BlackBerry stuff and their sales just tanked. So if you f follow the developers, like that's where the consumers are going to go. And the developers, they want to work on open systems that allow for innovation without permission. A great example of this at Money 2020, and if you go back and listen to the interview I did with uh, Nick Carey, the CEO of Blockchain, and Blockchain had raised $30 million, he talked about the hackathon at Money 2020. And we had 450 participants in the hackathon. Over half of them built Bitcoin-related applications. There was a guaranteed prize for whichever API you built on. So two people built on MasterCard's API. Uh, American Express, Visa, they had less than five people each building on their APIs. And yet you have hundreds of the 450 total building Bitcoin stuff. Like, where are the developers going? What's getting built out? Go look at a number of open GitHub projects that are Bitcoin related. Uh, all of this is very, very bullish for Bitcoin. That's where the innovation's going on. That's where the new stuff's getting built. That's where the developers are putting their mind share. They're all working on Bitcoin stuff. They're not working on MasterCard or American Express or Visa. They're not working on any of that. They're working on Bitcoin. So that's another huge network effect. They are working on some altcoins, but a lot of those altcoin innovations and changes can get merged into Bitcoin. 
You know, so it's not like an altcoin that they're working on is going to overtake Bitcoin. It's got to overtake all these seven-sided network effects at the same time. This leads us to the sixth network effect, which is financialization. Uh, this is regulation. You know, the CFTC in the U.S., they're looking for a Bitcoin futures exchange. Then we have smart contracts. We have New York's bit license, which is due in January. We have Texas and Kansas that are taking a hands-off approach officially towards Bitcoin regulation. We've got the Isle of Man. Uh, we did an interview with Brian Donegan. He's a representative of the Isle of Man government. It's, I think, episode 105, 104, 105, somewhere around there. And he talks about how in January they're going to pass the Proceeds of Crime Act, and it's going to have a, an amendment to it that is Bitcoin-specific, that gives their regulators jurisdiction, and they want to do the same thing with Bitcoin that they did with online gambling. Uh, keep crime out and protect customer funds. And when they pass the legislation to enable that industry, the digital online gaming industry, they got poker stars and then a lot of the other gambling companies followed. And they now have 10% of their GDP is related to all of this. So Isle of Man, Singapore, Netherlands, Jersey and Guernsey, these are all jurisdictions that are actively looking to get a lot of the Bitcoin companies uh, there. Isle of Man, they've, they've had over 60 Bitcoin companies domicile in Isle of Man because uh, they're providing such a friendly regulatory structure for them. Uh I presented at the British consulate on a panel, and London is actively courting the Bitcoin companies. And, and we actually have uh, that. I think that's episode 105, that panel. You can go listen to it. But, you know, London, the Isle of Man, they're trying to pull all the Bitcoin startups out of New York. You know, because that's where the innovation is going on. Just with BitPay, Armory, and Kraken, those companies have created over 100 new jobs, sustainable jobs. So, like, where do you, where where are the new jobs going to get created? Yeah, Bitcoin. You know, technology. That's where, what's driven the U.S. economy for the last twenty years. Silicon Valley, Facebook, and Amazon, and Google, and Yahoo, and blah blah blah. So, you know, they're trying to create Bitcoin Island in Isle of Man and really bring the companies there. That's all part of this financialization that'll get to. You know, we'll have futures markets and we'll have swaps and and futures and different contracts that will be able to roll Bitcoin into the current financial system that will provide companies like Overstock the ability to hold their treasury balances in Bitcoin, but be properly hedged with the fiat currencies that they're also doing business in. All of that is just hugely helpful in helping Bitcoin become, and this is the seventh network effect, become a settlement currency or liquidity, this regional or global reserve currency status. And that's with smart contracts, things like MadeSafeCoin, where where transactions are settling into the blockchain, where you're able to atomically trade shares of stock for Bitcoins. And then those shares of stock might even be tied to the ownership of the the real estate or the self-driving cars or the oil refinery, whatever, you know, that that's way down the road, but that those are potential applications that could be built And you know, things like Blockstream, they're going to be focused on making that possible insurance contracts and mar- and like margin requirements that are automatically enforced by smart contract and, and in the blockchain. 
hugely cool. And so that's 2014 year in review. 2015, what do I think is going to happen in 2015? I think we will see continued building on all of this foundation, and we're going to see more growth. I think speculation is going to increase. We've got media properties in place to teach all the new people. Uh, why Bitcoin, Cointelegraph, Coindesk, Bitcoin Magazine, this podcast, etc. We got easy to use applications for people to, to store their Bitcoins. Uh, Bread Wallet and Armory are the two that I really like. Uh, you know, very easy to use, easy for people to buy and sell Bitcoins. It's never been easier. Uh, Coin Radar ATM, we got hundreds of ATMs all over the world. We got services like Circle. For merchants, uh, I think BitPay is just full steam ahead. They got nine of the 15 billion plus dollar revenue companies uh, that are accepting Bitcoin. They're building out all the open source tools for the entire ecosystem to use. I think this is very important. These open source tools like BitPay is building tools where you don't need to rely on BitPay or BitPay servers like you do with Coinbase or blockchains, APIs or chain uh, API. Uh, things like Insight, Copay, BitAuth, etc. That's important because we don't, you know, we don't want these points of failure in the Bitcoin system if we don't need it. The Bitcoin network, I think it went down for just a couple hours in the first week, but other than that, it, it hasn't gone down in like six years. And we had all the ATMs go down in England over the weekend, like Royal Bank of Scotland's ATMs. The entire Visa network went down in Canada uh, once. Like that's hugely disruptive to merchants and poses a risk to social order. Uh, Bitcoin can get around a lot of that, and if we use open source tools, if the developers do to build out this stuff, like I think that's very important too. Next, we've got Bitnet. They received a large round of funding from very experienced. Uh, they're very experienced Visa guys. I think they're going to build out a lot of merchant solutions. Consumers, uh, over-the-counter trading, OTC, uh, local Bitcoins. Sources tell me that these are majorly being used by remittances, by, by you know, people who would otherwise be sending $500 via Western Union. So I think Bitcoin's actually getting uptake because like, it's adding value from mainstream people. In the U.S., for example, a survey was done, and they found that Hispanics were the most familiar with Bitcoin and also had the highest opinion of it. So I think they're using it to send money back and forth everywhere. Overstock, they expect Bitcoin to account for $0.04 out of the $0.75 of their EPS. That's a big deal. Uh, That's a compelling value proposition for merchants to accept Bitcoin. Security and miners, the unviable companies are being washed out across the industry, uh, and not just miners, but companies in general. The ASIC development is all going forward and increasing at a, at a great great rate. Like It's good. Developers are building stuff on Bitcoin. Bitcoin's really got that developer mind share. Financialization, you know, this bit license in January, the proceeds of Crime Act in January from the Isle of Man, other regulators will follow along with this. Uh, the, the state bank uh, association, they've come out with model rules that are similar to the bit license. All of this is going to 
help Bitcoin get folded into our mainstream financial system, which is what it needs in order to become huge. And Bitcoin can be the portal into cypherspace. You know, it can be the portal uh, into things like Monero, etc. So I don't necessarily think that's a bad, a bad thing. And at the end of the day, he who has the gold or he who has the Bitcoins makes the rules. So, you know, a lot of people, they want Bitcoin to be their thing uh, for their particular agenda or whatever. That's nice, but you got to be able to pay for it. And so I think we're going to see large corporate interests begin moving in and taking Bitcoin and using it for their interests. And they're going to be able to do that because they have the money, so they're going to make the rules. You know, players like Microsoft uh, and Overstock. So, you know, I think it, and they're going to want to know that it's regulatorily okay. And so I think we're going to see a lot of that moving forward in 2015. And all of this is going to help us move towards realizing Bitcoin for the seventh network effect for the liquidity, the settlement currency aspect. There's still a huge amount of significant work that has to be done before this is even close to being realized. I mean, it's years off. Blockstream received a lot of funding and they've started working on it. And don't underestimate Microsoft. They have plenty of resources to throw at this and they have an absolute ton to gain. You know, Microsoft disrupting the banks and disrupting the payment processors. And, you know, everybody's getting into this payments game, you know, with things like Apple Pay, et cetera. So I think all of this is just hugely bullish for Bitcoin. I think the Bitcoin's largely unstoppable. It will be the internet protocol for transferring value. We've had a huge uh, year in 2014, companies getting funded, work getting done uh, across all fronts. It's very exciting. So there we go. Uh, and once again, if you have any questions, you have any comments, like please contribute to the podcast. You can go to Bitcoin.kn. You can record a question. Uh, I can feature it on the podcast, answer the questions. It'd be great to get some feedback. We already got thousands and thousands of uh, unique listeners, uh, which is cool. Uh, but please, you know, like submit your questions, share the podcast with your friends, help us grow the podcast uh, in this coming year. Also, I'd be really grateful for that. So anyways, uh, thanks. Signing off. Be sure to get a copy of the free Bitcoin guide at freebitcoinguide.com. Got a question or suggestion? Record your voice at bitcoin.kn. Don't be shy. To help the show, share bitcoin.kn with friends, post about it on Reddit, and otherwise spam the interwebs. Your iTunes comments and five-star reviews are very important to us. Please continue tuning in to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, where we release interviews with the top people in the Bitcoin world. Now take some choline and let that Bitcoin knowledge consolidate.